thank you, Lord, that you are the wonderful creator. Help us to see again how perfect and how wonderful your creation is as we look at this lesson. Help us, Lord, to be alert and to concentrate on that which you have for us. Help me to speak clearly and quickly, and we will give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The waters of the deep, which originally covered the earth of day one of creation, had been separated on the second day into those waters which God had lifted above the firmament and those which were under the firmament. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, which now you're opening your Bible to, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 7. The firmament itself was, of course, our unique oxygen-rich atmosphere which makes life possible here on Earth. And we discussed in our lesson last time the very likely possibility that the waters above the atmosphere formed a water vapor canopy around the early Earth, the pre-flood Earth. And this canopy helps then for us to understand the longevity of life which we find recorded in the genealogical records of the book of Genesis. You know, men live to be very old. And it also helps to explain the size of the tremendous animals and the vegetation which is found in the fossil record, even in such cold places as Alaska and Antarctic. And it explains the mist that we read about in Genesis 2.6, as well as the global first-time flood in the days of Noah. Now, as we turn our attention to verses 9 to 13, yes, we're really going to cover that many verses in one lesson. Oh, we're really going at a pace now. We find that the waters below the firmament, those waters that were actually left down there on the earth, still covered the entire face of the globe. In other words, the whole earth was covered in water. There was no land. So on the third day of creation, which is what we're going to look at this morning, God performed yet a third act of separation. Or division. He had already, remember, separated the mysterious created light of the first day from the darkness. That was his first act of separation. And he had divided, as we just mentioned, the waters above the firmament from the waters below the firmament on the second day. And now in this lesson, on the third day of the creation week, he separated the lower waters, those on the globe, from the land. There was now going to be land on planet Earth. In order to make provision for man to live on this planet, God had to make land because God was not going to make man as a sea creature, even though that's what evolutionists would tell us the man originated from, that we originated from the sea. You know, once a long, long time ago, believe it or not, you used to be some seaweed. (laughs) That's what they would tell us. But God wanted us to come from the land. God had made an atmosphere for man to breathe, and he had given him water for him to drink. And next he would prepare a, what is called a lithosphere. He would prepare land for man to live on. And then on day three also, God was very busy on day three. Not only did he make land, but then he filled the land with vegetation. So he formed a lithosphere and what is called a biosphere. Now, as we consider God's creative activities then of day three, we are going to look at him finishing, God finishing his formation work, his work of forming his originally created matter into a uniquely prepared place for man. Remember the first three days he's forming and the second three days he's what? Filling. So we're going to look at his last act of forming as he forms land for man to live on. And then we're going to look at his first act of filling as he fills the land with vegetation. So that's what he does on day three. So if you will look with me, we're going to start now by looking at God finished his formation work. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. It says, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. 
and God saw that it was good. The spherically formed, lighted, and spinning earth, there it is, was one big worldwide ocean following the first two days of the creation week. But then, as we just read, we see God spoke for the third time, and he said, this is his third creation commandment, which begins again with what word? Hiyah! <laughs> he said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. The power which put into operation gigantic earth movements, which resulted in the surfaces then of solid earth appearing above the waters, that power was none other again than the spoken word of God. When God spoke Tremendous chemical reactions immediately would have begun to occur as the various elements of the Earth's matter, remember just the matter that he created, would combine together to form the complex of minerals and rocks and soils which make up the crust and the mantle and the, and the core of this planet. Now, of course, we don't know all that was involved in pulling aside the waters and raising up the land, except to say, as you can imagine, that it was a staggering act of creation which only an all-powerful God could perform. Perhaps massive volcanic eruptions caused land masses to just thrust up out of the waters, and then as the tonnage of rushing waters would have run off the emerging land, an intricate network of channels and reservoirs, reservoirs would have opened up on the Earth's crust, forming streams and rivers and lakes, while the bulk of the waters were formed as great subterranean chambers within the Earth's crust itself. And all of these deeper waters and this network then of tubes and waterways were interconnected so that they were, in effect, gathered together unto one place, as it says there in verse 9. It is possible that the land which arose above the waters now, think about this, it is possible that it consisted back in that time, third day of creation, of one large land mass. In other words, it's possible that when the land came up, it was connected. It was just one continent that sort of circled the globe, you know, perhaps in the middle of the globe, around like the equator line. It may be that the breaking up of the tectonic plates during the time of the flood, you know, when it tells us in Genesis 6:11 that the fountains of the great deep the fountains of the great deep were broken up. It could be that at that time there was a division then of the original singular landmass into the continents as we know them today. You know, on creation day three, perhaps there was just one continent. And then at the time of the flood, when there all kinds of earthquakes and all sorts of awful things were going on, perhaps that original landmass cracked, forming the seven continents as we know them. But at that point, they would have still been sort of close together. Well, also, there may have been a second force of energy released from beneath the Earth's crust in connection with the judgment at the time of the Tower of Babel, when God gave different languages to men in order to stop their united humanistic effort, you know, to, to build their own way to God. In Genesis, if you'll flip over, look at Genesis 10.25 for a minute. Genesis 10.25. You know this is all speculation because we don't know, but it's interesting speculation. In Genesis 10.25, we are told of a fellow named Peleg, P-E-L-E-G. This man was Noah's great, great, great grandson. And his name, Peleg, in Hebrew means division. And it says there in the scripture, in his, that's speaking of Peleg's days, was the earth what? 
divided. In his days was the earth divided. Now, Peleg was born shortly after the incident at the Tower of Babel. And so Genesis 10.25 could be speaking of a division into different geographic areas based upon the different language groups. Remember, God gave everybody, well, not everybody, but he gave a whole lot of different languages. And then if you could only communicate with people in whatever it might have been, Spanish, let's say, although that developed over time. But whatever your language group, you might have eventually moved off with that group of people into a different geographical area. So it could be talking about a division geographically based on language differences, or it could mean that the land itself was further split apart, further divided, or it also could mean both divisions took place. If this splitting of the original land masses did occur at either the flood or the Tower of Babel or at both, you know, perhaps, as I said, the original one singular landmass, the original continent, maybe broke and split apart at the flood, the time of the flood, and then maybe at the time of the Tower of Babel, it broke even further apart, and then sort of they began to be pushed apart further and further. This could account for the continental drift theory. Have you ever heard of that? where they actually do predict a thing like this happen. Here's, um, well, they're not all pushed together here, but this would be somewhat like the first continent, except you push them all together, and then they slowly divide it until we have the seven continents as we know them today. And it is very amazing. I don't know if you can see it here, but if you would look at a laid-out picture of all the land masses and then kind of try to imagine pushing them together like pieces of a puzzle, it is incredibly amazing how they do all fit together, just like, like a puzzle. So that's something to think about. Now, if the original land was in the form of one large continent, and of course we don't know because we weren't there, but if it was, then as the scripture tells us, you can go back to Genesis 1, as it tells us here in verse 9, the waters under the heaven would have been literally gathered together unto one place, and the dry land, singular, would have emerged. However, even if the land masses of the world were already separated when God created them, when he initially created them, yet we still know that the seas, the oceans of the world, do occupy one bed, one place, because they are all connected. And therefore, there is still nothing incorrect about Moses having declared that God gathered all the waters together unto one place. Actually, the waters of the world, again, show the great intelligence and power of their creator. Because all the waters of the world are interconnected, and they all are intertwined. They might be underground, or they might be above ground, but they all have a common source and receptacle. And only the mighty power and wisdom of God himself could have connected and interrelated all of the waters of the earth. It says in Ecclesiastes 1.7, it says this, and men didn't know this, again, for years, but here it was in Ecclesiastes, written by wise King Solomon. It says, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the rivers come. Thither they return again. So every, all the waters of the world are interrelated and connected. Furthermore, God set boundaries on the sea. <clears throat> there are shorelines beyond which the seas cannot go. Job 38.8 contains God's question to Job. God says this. He asks Job a question. He says, Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? In other words, I've put doors. You know, there's a limit to how far the oceans can go. And in Proverbs 8, a very interesting um, section of the scripture is Proverbs 8, verses 27 to 30. It's interesting not only because it demonstrates that Christ was there, because Christ is the one speaking, it's wisdom 
but Christ is wisdom personified. So Christ was there, he's telling us, with God at the time of creation. But these verses are also interesting because they tell us that the waters of the world's seas or oceans are fixed. It says that the waters should not pass beyond God's decree, beyond his commandment. He has you know, put doors on them. It says also in Job 38.10 that he established a decreed place for the waters and set bars and doors upon them. So what we see here is that just as the day and night cycle, you know, the light and dark cycle was fixed by God, and just as we discussed last time how the orbits of all the planets and all the stars and the solar systems and the galaxies, they are all fixed by God. And as we will see at the latter half of this lesson, how all the types of living organisms are also fixed so that they can only reproduce after their own kinds, we now see here that God also fixed the shorelines of the seas. And then the last three words of verse 9 are what? Or the last four words, actually. And it was so. God's word will always, always be fulfilled. What he commands will be accomplished. That's one thing in life that you can count on. One thing you can bank on is that God's word will always be fulfilled. Dictum factum. I love that. Dictum factum. Okay, um, now I'm going to move into the next part. We've looked at God separated the waters from the land. Now we're going to look at God named the land and the waters just very briefly, where it says uh, in verse 10, And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. Since God is the creator, he has every right to name his creation. Right? Just kind of like... <laughs> When you have a child, since it's your child, you have the right to give that child the name that you have chosen for him or her. Now, because he is the creator of both light and darkness, he had the right to name light day and to name darkness night. He also created the atmosphere, and therefore he had the right to name it. What did he name the atmosphere, according to verse 8? Heaven, which we found out basically means space. And then because he also made both the dry land and the waters of this planet, he had the right to name them. So what did he name the land? Earth, which in Hebrew is Eretz, E-R-E-T-S. And it is the word we get earth from. If you say it several times, you can almost hear earth coming out of Eretz. <laughs> and then he named the sea, the, or the gathering place of the waters, he named seas. It's interesting that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, all right? That's what the Septuagint is. That the word for the gathering place, when he put all the waters into the gathering place, that word is synagogue. Isn't that interesting? And the synagogue was indeed a gathering place. So I just thought that was neat. And then he looked upon his separation of the earth's waters from the dry land after he named them, and he declared that his result was what? Good. Look at the end of verse 10. And God saw that it was good. In other words, both the waters and the land were valuable. And they had a very special purpose, purposes for which they had been created. They were formed in order to provide a place for man and animals to live. You know, both land and sea animals to live. And they were formed to provide a place to grow food and for water to sit and flow so that life could be sustained here on the earth. So the land was good because it would provide a place for man to live and it would provide food for man to eat. The waters were good because they would provide both water to drink for man and food to eat because we know food cannot be food without water. You have to have water in order to grow food. Furthermore, the waters and the dry land were good because they gave variety and interest and beauty to this planet. Both are also good because they speak of their creator. 
they glorify their creator. It says in Psalm 95, verses 5 and 6, the sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. When we look at God's creation, what are we to do? We are to worship him for it because it is so magnificent and it speaks so clearly of him. You know, I was thinking this week as I was studying about God pulling back all those millions and millions of tons of water in order to allow the land, the dry land, to emerge. And I thought of that in relationship to what he did at the Red Sea. And just putting that sort of in perspective, it just, you really see it in the proper perspective about how how insignificant that was, you know, just to split one little sea and just pull them back and, and the Israelites were able to cross over on dry land. But uh, of course he could do that. He's God. That was no big problem at all. So I think when we see God in the Genesis 1 creation story, it makes us realize that he can do anything at all, anything. He's God. I mean, sometimes we marvel and say, well, a miracle of the Red Sea, God couldn't really have done that. That's just impossible. Some theologians even say, well, they really didn't, you know, it was only a couple inches thick, and that's how they crossed over. Of course, you've heard the story, how it's pretty amazing, Then it's a greater miracle that all the Egyptians, all the soldiers and their chariots drowned in a couple inches of water. I mean, that's a greater miracle than dividing it. <laughs> all right, let's move on now. Second part of our outline is that God begins his filling work. Let's look at verses 11 to 13. It says, beginning at verse 11, And God said, Let the earth, here again we have hayah, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. In these verses, we find that God was still continuing his activities on the third day. It was apparently just so easy for him to pull back those billions of tons of waters on the earth and bring forth dry land that he got that done maybe in the morning and he still had time left over in the day before the end of the day to do some more creative activities. So he fills the earth with vegetation. When God formed the dry land on that first part of day three, not only did he produce rocks and minerals you know, which our land is made out of, but he also covered the land with rich and fertile soil, which consists of sand and silt and clay particles um, mixed with the abundance of chemical nutrients and also soil moisture. He made all that, the ground, he made the ground ready so that it could provide a home for the life which God had predetermined he would cause to come out of it, to spring forth out of it. So in yet another commandment to his creation, he said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And then in obedience to its maker, because creation always obeys, doesn't it? It's not like man who was given free choice. Creation was not given free choice. Creation always obeys. So the earth gave birth to vegetation. God spoke and the physical laws which gave which give birth and growth to plant life were launched. In other words, God spoke and it was so, right? Because creation always obeys. Now, isn't this interesting that we have again another trinity, don't we? We look at these verses. Three main groups of vegetation or plant life are listed. It says in the King James, it calls it grasses or grass, herbs, and trees. All vegetation 
according to God, can be placed into one of these three categories, which were listed by Moses under divine inspiration. And so once again, creation is giving evidence, it's giving testimony as to the triune nature of its creator. Now the word grass, we have to do a little clarification here because it's always important to go to the original language and find out what words really, really mean. The word grass in the Hebrew is the word, I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's spelled D-E-S-H-E, deshi, that's my guess. Deshi means literally green or damp, or both, green and damp, meaning wet. Now, this category of vegetation would include, then, all green and damp plants which hug or carpet the earth, such things as mosses and ferns and things you see up here, algae and fungi and um, lichens and liverwort and peat moss and all, all kinds of different things like that. That's what... It, it would include, notice there's nothing said in verse 11 or verse 12 about the, they use the word grass, these um, green or damp plants reproducing by seeds. And that's because they don't reproduce by seeds, they reproduce by spores. And then the next category, the word herb in the Hebrew is the word eseb, E-S-E-B. And it refers to all plants not trees, but all plants, like here, this section, which yield seed. It speaks of such seed-bearing plants as grains and vegetables and bushes and shrubs and flowers. Essentially, all living plant life which exists between the ground-hugging plants and the towering trees above. Then the third category established by God is called peri, P-E-R-I, and it is the Hebrew word for fruit. And therefore, this category speaks of all fruit and seed-bearing trees. Peri refers to all trees which bear fruit, but not just trees which bear fruit for eating, like we think of apples and pears and, and cherries and things like that. It also includes trees that have cones, like our, pine, like our pine trees, and nuts and berries and various other forms of seeds. Now, it's interesting that botanists today use a similar division of vegetation to that which is found here in Scripture because they divide plants into acotyledons, which are seedless plants, monocotyledons, which are seed-bearing plants, and dicotyledons, which are fruit-bearing plants. And this, this system of plant classification took scientists many centuries of research to develop, and yet Moses told them of this classification here on the very first page of Scripture. So once again, they could have saved themselves a lot of time and effort if they had just turned to the Scripture. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but I mention it briefly in your notes. It's a very fascinating study if you ever study the science of seed dispersal. It's another wonderful testimony as to the magnificence of our Creator and His intelligence. It's a mutually beneficial system how seeds are dispersed. You know, through and they're even pre-fertilized. <laughs> Do you know what I mean about birds flying over your head and watch out? And animals. And, but anyway, it's a it's a fantastic study if you ever have time to study it, or maybe you have somewhere along the line in your science classes. So the vegetation which sprung from the earth on day three of creation, in obedience to God's command, was in the form of full-grown plants. How do we know they were full-grown? How, how do we know that they were mature when he created them? Right, because it says they already had seeds in themselves. They were already yielding seed. They were mature. They were ready to reproduce. These various types of vegetation all had, therefore, the appearance of age 
and they had the ability of age because they were able to reproduce. And yet they were less than a day old, weren't they? They were hours old, minutes old, and they already had the appearance of age and the ability of age. Now this is true, we're going to see this as we go through the rest of the creation week. This is true of all of God's creation of the original animals and also of our original parents, Adam and Eve. Adam was not created as a baby, but he was created as a full-grown man who was immediately commanded to multiply through reproduction. Yet, think of this little scenario in your head. If an evolutionist had walked up to Adam on the sixth day of the creation week, he would have reported in his scientific journals that Adam was probably somewhere between 18 years of age and maybe 30. I, I don't know what, what age he looked like according to the scripture because we're not told. But he would have put down there, well, this, this man is somewhere in his 20s or 30s perhaps. Now, if Adam had seen him write that and responded by telling him, no, that is not true at all, Mr. Evolutionist. I am not that old. and As a matter of fact, I am quite young. In fact, I am only really a couple hours old. What would the evolutionist have said to him? He would have scoffed him. He would have laughed in his face. He would have said, you are really foolish. You see, Evolution assumes or evolution presumes the concept of uniformitarianism. Remember that big word? That means that all processes have continued just as we view them today. However, the processes which occurred during the creation week were unique. They were not the processes of this present era. Low-lying greenery and shrubs and bushes and trees were all created full-grown and mature. They were all created as a functioning entity, fully developed from the very, very beginning. So the apparent age which men attempt to calculate for the universe, for the cosmos, in terms of our present processes, you know, looking at what's going on today, will be vastly different from the true age, just as the evolutionist would have been so wrong in his assumption of Adam's age. Adam was only maybe a minute old, and the evolutionist would have said, oh no, he's got to at least be 30. The true age of the universe and the earth and man is revealed to us by our creator in the Bible. He is the only one who was there, the only one who knows. And according to the Bible, the earth can be no more than 10,000 to 6,000 years old. We have a relatively young earth. All other estimates at the age of this universe and earth and, the, and man are nothing but guesses. They are just guesses. Now in future lessons, Lord willing, we are going to discuss some of the abundant evidence for supporting the biblical account of a young earth. However, just I couldn't pass this by without wetting your appetites just a little bit by giving you a couple of these evidences before we continue on to discuss our lesson this morning. Every year, there are many, many meteorites. You know what a meteorite is? It's, it's a mass of metal or stone which breaks off of a meteor, and it you know, when they come through our atmosphere, many of them burn up. But some of them, many of them, do make it through the Earth's atmosphere, and they actually plummet themselves, they deposit themselves down into the ground. I was thinking about that. That could be kind of a dangerous thing. You not only have to watch out for pre-fertilized seeds, <laughs> but you have to watch out for flying meteorites. But every year there are many of these little meteorites, some not so little, that make it through the atmosphere. Now, if, as the uniformitarian evolutionists presume and teach, if the sedimentary strata the different layers of the Earth's crust, has been building up for billions of years, then it would make sense, wouldn't it, for pieces of fossilized meteorites 
to be found in every one of these geological columns, in every level of the geologic column. In other words, there should be evidence of many meteorites in the sedimentary layers of the various geological ages. And yet, the evidence simply is not there. In fact, not one single genuine meteorite has ever been found in any of the Earth's geologic column. And that's, and you know, if they're looking at what's going on today and saying it's always been this way and it's been going on for billions of years, then there definitely should be evidences of meteorites in all these different columns. But there isn't a single one. All the meteorites which are found are, guess where? Right here on the top level of the Earth's crust. Now this shocks and it embarrasses the evolutionist because, because it it blows his little theory, so he keeps quiet about it. He goes back to the drawing board and tries to come up with something else. But it doesn't shock the creationist at all. Those who take the Bible literally believe that the majority of the Earth's geologic column, all these different layers, was laid down very rapidly during the time of the worldwide flood of Noah's days. Day. And since Noah's day, which was some 5,400 years ago, there has been insufficient time for meteorites to have accumulated in any other layer of the Earth's strata other than the top layer, because it's only been 5,000-some years. And you know, it would take millions of years to build up these layers, as they say. So it doesn't, it doesn't bother the creationists at all that all the meteorites are found in just the top layer of the Earth's crust. Also, related to the subject of meteorite deposits is the subject of space dust. Now, space dust is said to come from, at least in part, the breaking up of meteors and comets and um, meteorites. This interplanetary space dust settles down eventually on planets because or moons because it's drawn to them by gravity. And it has been measured not only on the Earth but also on the moon and on Mars. According to the evolutionist, the universe and our solar system are, as they say, you know, billions of years old. And therefore, they had estimated before they got to the moon and Mars through satellites, they had estimated that there should be a great accumulation of space dust. So when the first astronauts were being prepared to land on the moon, the evolutionists expected an extremely thick layer of this space dust up there on the moon. In fact, some of their estimates ran as high as 50 to 180 feet thick. Or, and even higher than that, 180 feet of, of um, space dust. Because, you know, they say the Earth is, the moon is billions of years old, just like the Earth. So that, I mean, like if you let your house go for billions of years, you'd have 180 feet worth of dust to clean off too, wouldn't you? So, as a matter of fact, one astronaut, I don't know which one, but one of them admitted before this trip to the moon that his greatest fear of the whole trip was not the takeoff and not anything else, but it was that when they landed on the moon, they would sink down so far that they couldn't get out and they would suffocate. They would die down there. That was his greatest fear. Now, because of this, they actually put large, I don't think you can see it in that picture, but they put large saucer-shaped feet on the bottom of the lunar lander, you know, kind of like snowshoes, so that maybe it would just stay up on top of all this space dust. However, upon landing, the astronauts and the evolutionists were extremely shocked to find that the layer of loose dust was actually very, very minor. As you can see, <laughs> this astronaut standing there, this is an actual picture of him standing on the moon. The layer of space dust was only like about two inches to four inches thick, and that was it. That was as much as a thousand times less than what they originally thought. And this has been found to be true on Mars as well and also on Earth, and I get into more about that in your notes. But 
it's, fasc- it's a fascinating study to study all the evidence that there is out there in our world to show us that we do live on a relatively young earth and not the billions and billions of the ancient age which is proposed to us by the evolutionists. We have such proofs. We'll get into this, I hope, because I've been really fascinated by it. But we'll talk about such thing as the magnetic field decay around our planet, about comet decay, population statistics, about the heat on Jupiter and Saturn, about the sediment inflow from the Earth's rivers to the oceans, about galaxy spirals. If the Earth, if the cosmos was as old as they say, the spirals of the various galaxies would be very tightly woven instead of the way they are, you know, today. Also, we'll talk about the lack of erosion between the sedimentary strata of the geologic column, about the mountain uplift rate, about juvenile water, about the amount of helium in the atmosphere, about sun shrinkage, and other such topics. And I just wanted to throw that out to you. I will explain them, I hope, when we get to it so it won't be so confusing. It sounds kind of scientific right now, but it's really amazing. And I am absolutely convinced that the Bible is correct and that our earth is no more than 10,000 years old. Let's get on and look at God separating the plant life. It's significant here to notice that the words seed and kind, K-I-N-D, both appear for the first time in verse 11. Placed into each fully created, matured type of plant organism was a type of seed or spore, which was divinely programmed to enable that particular organism to reproduce its own, what, kind. So the command of God Almighty to all living things, and we'll see that this includes animals as well, was that each organism was to reproduce after his kind. That's a phrase, if you look through chapter 1, that's a phrase that you will see occurs 10 times in Genesis 1. We could call these then the 10 commandments of reproduction. And each commandment is exactly the same. Each kind, and the Hebrew word is min, M-I-N, each kind was to reproduce only after its own kind, not after some other kind. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, even a little child can understand that. The command was to God's own created nature. Remember, his nature has no choice but to obey, right? So, just like everything else obeyed, this is go- they're going to obey too. All the living vegetation and all the animals are going to obey. The words, after his kind, is the rock of, which causes the entire evolutionary theory to really perish. God himself, you see, has decreed that there would be no change from one kind to another kind. There would be no change from one, whatever you want to call it, one genus, one species, one family, whatever, to another. There may be variations within one given kind. I mean, look at look around the room. There are many variations of a particular kind, but no kind is ever changed into another kind. I mean, a lot of this is just such common sense, isn't it? But Man has proven he doesn't have a whole lot of common sense. The principles of genetics has been, create, has been established by none other than the creator himself. Each kind of organism, as we now know, has its very own totally unique structure of the DNA molecule, which is the dioxyribonucleic acid molecule, the DNA molecule. And the genetic code contained in it, in this fascinating molecule, supports the Bible's teaching regarding the stability of kinds. Actually, a study of the DNA disproves the evolutionary theory. And that's something else we'll get into, Lord willing, one of these days. There, there may be, as I said, a large variation, a, lar- a large amount of variation 
within each kind. In other words, what I'm saying is there may be many, many different kinds of dogs, right? Many, many different kinds of cats. But there is never the possibility of the evolution of new kinds. In other words, there is a lot of horizontal variation, you know, like lots of different cats, lots of different fish. This is horizontal. But there are no vertical changes. Well, here, this is a picture of vertical change. In other words, no amoeba changing into a fish and a fish changing into a frog and a frog into a lizard and a lizard into a, a bird and a bird into a whatever, a, a cow, etc., and a monkey turning into a man. To say that all living things come from a common an ancestry, which is the evolutionary teaching, you know, to say that is refuted by God's words after his kind, as well as by all scientific observations made to date. So not only is it refuted by God's word, it's refuted by science itself. Dr. M. R. DeHaan, in his book, which is entitled Genesis and Evolution, says this. I'm going to read this quote. It's lengthy, but it's worth it. He says, there is much which goes under the name of evolution, which is not evolution, but should be called development or improvement instead. The Bible statement, let it bring forth after its kind, does not preclude the development of a wide range of varieties within that particular species or kind. Unfortunately, a great deal of misunderstanding has resulted from the use of the term evolution to denote mere improvement of a species or the development of new varieties of the same species. There are many varieties of the same species. For instance, there are many different kinds of apples or many different kinds of pickles. We have within the canine or the dog species many varieties such as foxes and wolves and dingoes, Mexican chihuahuas and St. Bernards and Great Danes, but they are all what? Dogs. So there are many varieties of cats within the feline kind, such as the different breeds of domestic wild cats, etc. But all are still cats. All the varieties of apples came from one original kind of apple. But by culture and scientific pollination and grafting, they were developed into greatly improved different varieties, horizontal level. But this is not evolution. This is merely improvement, development, and cultivation. Evolution teaches the change or transmutation by means of a slow process of one species into another from lower to higher resulting in an entirely new kind such as a fish into a mammal eventually or a goat into a cow or a hippopotamus into a horse or a monkey into a man not, excuse me, this is quite a different thing than cultivating new varieties of the same species. Not one single proven example of an evolution from one species to another has ever been found. That's true, okay? The missing link is a link which is entirely in the realm of supposition without one single speck of tangible proof. Today, this is still quote, today science must abide by the law like produces like or everything after his own kind. Not one example of evolution of a lower order of beings into a higher has ever been found. Members of two different species usually cannot even interbreed. But even in rare cases where two very closely related species can reproduce, the resulting offspring is sterile, and the evolutionist theory is stopped at its offset. As an example, we have the mule. 
which is the offspring of a jackass and a mare, but is completely sterile and cannot reproduce, thus making impossible the emergence of a new species called mule. Since members of different species, which is called kinds in the Bible, do not interbreed, there can be no evolution. Without a change or production of a new species, there can be no evolution. All right. Therefore, the theory of evolution is not only unscriptural, but it is un- it utterly unscientific, unproven, and contrary to all scientific facts and logic. End of quote. I really wish this is what they were teaching our children in the public school system, because long ago they did realize that evolution is unscientific, but yet the textbooks are still teaching it. It's amazing. The permanence, then, of the originally created kinds, whether they be kinds of vegetation or kinds of animals or kinds of humans or kinds of angels, that's another kind, humans, angels, that they can never, ever become another kind is also supported in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 38 to 39, it says this. Paul wrote this. He says, quote, But God giveth it a body, as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. And he goes on to say that there's also celestial bodies, angelic bodies, and terrestrial bodies. And one cannot, one doesn't have the body of another. One can't go and evolve into another. Just as God fixed the day light from the night darkness, and just as he fixed the shorelines of the oceans, and just as he fixed the orbits of the planets and the moons, moons and the stars, so also did he fix all living organisms by means of their seeds and their kinds. Man has known for a long time that it is impossible to breed substantially different kinds of animals. If you try to mate a dog with, with a cat, for example, you're not going to get a cute little pup kitty, (laughs) or whatever you would want to call it. The result, if you try to mate a dog with a cat, you know what the result is? Nothing. You get nothing. (laughs) What? A what? A fight. (laughs) That's it. You got it. (laughs) You get a fight. But the result is nothing. That was good. Because they cannot reproduce. They cannot reproduce. Modern science has established the fact that the coded information within the DNA molecules does not permit God. Oh, and if you, oh, man, the DNA is so fascinating. I think I have a picture of it. Right here, jumping ahead, but it is so fascinating. And if there's anything that gives evidence of a creator God, it is this DNA molecule. But anyway, the coded information placed into it does not permit reproduction to take place within the species. The process, if you've ever had a baby, you know that the process of reproduction is a tremendous miracle in itself and it's just one more evidence of God's amazing wisdom and his power. Mankind has been able to learn a great deal about this amazing process and even to control it to a limited degree through controlled breeding and selection. Isn't this what Jacob did? Jacob knew about controlled breeding when he was breeding what was it sheep or goats or whatever? Huh? Yeah, the spotted and the and the white and the black and the spotted and, and he would get all the spotted, right? So anyway, man understands about that. He can develop characteristics in plants and animals which he considers desirable for his own uses. And in this, in a sense, he is exercising his God given ability to have dominion over the other creatures. However, in this dominion, man has often misused 
his divinely given authority, as he is doing nowadays in his experimentation with trying to create life in test tubes and cloning. This is misuse of his God-given right to have dominion over the animals. However, even within the realm of controlled breeding and selection and grafting, man still has narrow limits. He can never, as James says in the book of James, he can never enable a fig tree to bring forth olives. And he can never develop, have a vine, a grapevine, to bear figs. All of the thousands of books which have been written probably millions of books which have been written about evolution still have never, ever made it happen. They can write and write as much as they want, but it has never happened. Like always begets like. A basic kind, as I said, may proliferate into many diverse varieties, but it has never and never will change into another basic kind. Gregor Mendel, you know, Gregor Mendel lived at the same time as Charles Darwin. And what he discovered totally refuted Darwinism. But they kept it quiet, what he discovered for 35 years. It's amazing. But he lived in the 1800s, and Gregor Mendel's studies on the science of heredity destroyed Darwin's theories of evolutionary heredity. Traits of any individual plant or animal are the result of the latent code contained, as I said, in that DNA molecule. Traits may be lost or they may be modified, but the appearance of absolutely new structures is impossible. So neo-Darwinists, these are people who said, well, Darwin has been proven wrong, so they came up with, you know, they went back to their... Uh, their little theories, and they came up with a new one, and they, they're called neo-Darwinists. They have turned to mutations, then, as their possible hope of overcoming the barriers between the different kinds of plants and animals. A mutation is a sudden, very rare, very rare, random alteration in the DNA code. So very simply stated, I don't have time, I'm running out of time to get into this, but very simply stated, neo-Darwinism, which is the big thing today, is that amoeba, you take your original, you take your amoeba and add mutations to it, and then a lot, a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of time and energy and chance, and you will eventually get to man. Very similar to take the frog, a magic wand and give it a lot of time and you will get your Prince Charming. And I had a picture of a frog and a Prince Charming, but I've lost him. But that's about it. That is about what they're saying. The fruit fly, let me get him up. There he is. There it is. There's our frog and our Prince Charming. The fruit fly um, reproduces very, very fast. So they, they have been able to watch it they actually been able to watch thousands of generations of fruit fly, and they have been breeding them in laboratories, trying to um, see that this mutation theory will work. Now, because they do reproduce so incredibly fast, they can watch thousands of generations of fruit flies. And because they want to have mutations form on the fruit flies, they have been, these poor little insects, they have been using X-ray radiation to deliberately cause mutations in the flies so that they could study the effects. Now, the bombardment, then, of these unfortunate little creatures has produced only, and they've been doing this at our expense, tax dollars expense, many millions of dollars for many years, the only effect has been a great variety of mutational defects and deformities. And these mutations, of course, if these little creatures were outside in the real world instead of in laboratories, would have caused their death because mutations are almost always damaging. 99.99% of the time, a mutation is damaging in one way or another. So the scientists, 
have produced fruit flies with only one wing. They have produced fruit flies with extra long wings. They have produced fruit flies with double sets of wings. They have produced fruit flies with extra eyes and fruit flies with crumpled or curled wings and fruit flies with all kinds of weird little features, but they have never in thousands of generations of fruit flies ever seen one fruit fly hatch with a new kind of eye or a new kind of foot, or a feather, or a scale. They have never, in other words, ever seen a fruit fly become a honeybee. <laughs> Every fruit fly, no matter how deformed, is still a fruit fly. If evolution was true, this neo-Darwin evolution, you would think that after thousands and thousands of generations, there might be some kind of evolutionary development in the fruit flies, but none has yet appeared, and none will appear. When mutations produce random rearrangements in the information which is stored in the DNA molecule, the result, I've got news for you, the result is always, always damaging, 99.9% .9 of the time. The result is not an improvement. What do you think of when you hear the word mutation? Do you think of, oh, an improvement? We're evolving upward. <laughs> no, it's always, most of the time, a loss. In other words, mutations and changes in genetics are a negative change. They are a downward change and not, as the evolutionists need, an upward change. Plus, here's a cow with six legs. Most of these creatures would never make it. You know, their survival of the fittest? <laughs> well, they would never make it anyway. Plus, if you have a mutation and you reproduce, does your poor little baby also inherit six legs? No, it doesn't work that way. If you went and, and cut off your arm, would your baby come to earth without an arm? No. And the transitional forms also from one kind to another kind simply are not in the fossil record either. The evolutionist's response to his dilemma is this. He would say, well, you know, <clears throat> he'd put on his white lab coat and he would say to you, well, you know, evolution occurs so slowly in this present world that we simply cannot detect it. And it occurs so rapidly in the fossil world that we simply cannot detect it. But though we cannot detect it, it's a fact, and if you don't believe it, then you are simply unlearned. That's what he would say. So evolution is actually a fact-free science. It is. I'm not making fun of it. It's true. I am making fun of it because it's from Satan. It really is. It has taken so many people away from the truth. But the truth of the matter is that even after billions of dollars in scientific research and using the skill of thousands of scientists who have invested lifetimes in laboratories and digging up in the Earth's crust, the verdict is still the same. Guess what the verdict is? After his kind. That's it. God said it, and that's, it is so. <laughs> In Genesis 1.12, we read for the third time in chapter 1, then the phrase, God saw that it was good. The plant life which God had caused to sprout from the land with the fully mature ability to reproduce itself into all its various own kinds, he saw and said that that was good. It was valuable because it would provide food for animals and it would provide food for man and it would supply oxygen. You know, the vegetation is what supplies oxygen to the atmosphere for man and animals to breathe. And it would help in the controlling of climate and land erosion. And it would capture the energy from light and convert it to chemical energy in the process called photosynthesis. And this is a process which makes life possible here on Earth. So it was good, and it was good in the sense of beauty. Don't you say that almost every day when you look out at creation? It's beautiful. The earth literally became alive on the third day of creation. It was full of all kinds of greenery, mosses and grasses and flowers. Just think of the awesome 
colors of all the different flowers and shrubbery and trees and fruit. The earth was just full of color and beauty such as you and I cannot even fathom because this was before the fall and before the curse. The earth was full of colorful, lush, fruitful life and God was pleased. Man would have something to feast upon and he would have something to feast his eyes upon as well as his body. He would have something to also give worship to God, the creator. Now, you know, there was another third day which brought life to the earth as well, wasn't there? On that third day, God's son came alive from the dead. Up from the grave, he arose. And he, too, brought something for man to feast on. He brought something for man to feast his hungering soul on. Man must have the food of God, not only physically, but he needs the food of God spiritually. And Jesus Christ is that spiritual food. He is, as he himself said, the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I wonder in closing, have you tasted and seen that he is indeed good? Because he is. I hope you have. It says in the scripture, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And the evening and the morning were the third day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful wonderful scripture that you have given to us that no matter how much men may invest in their research and in their studies they're always going to find out eventually that your word has been true from the very beginning because you are the beginning and you've been there and you certainly know what you've created and how you've created it and we just thank you once again for the magnificence of life itself thank you for giving us physical life and thank you so much for sending to this earth the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might have eternal life. I pray, Father, if there's one here who has never tasted and seen that he is indeed good, I pray that today she'd fall on her face and ask you into her heart, acknowledge that she's a sinner and that Jesus Christ died for her sins and that she would be born again as your child. And we will forever praise you and thank you. And we love you. I pray that we will have a wonderful um, holiday and make sure that we do give you thanks for everything and that we share our love for you with others, that you give us divine opportunities to share our, our love of you and Jesus Christ during this Thanksgiving holiday. Bring us all back safely, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.